with them, those who could not come and be a part of this service. Minister to them, Lord, even through sermon audio. For we ask these things for thy glory alone. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, was faced with many questions. Some questions were designed to flatter the questioner, such as the question that was asked by the rich ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Other questions were intended to trap the Lord Jesus Christ. There was the idea that if they asked such a question, well, there was only two logical outcomes that he could answer with, and thereby whatever answer he would give, he would be ensnared. There was others who have asked questions and maybe not even got the words out of their mouth, such as Nicodemus. But although they did not ask a question with their mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ knew the question that was upon their heart. Now, questions are often a very good thing. They develop conversation and understanding. And there were several good questions that were put to our Savior throughout His earthly ministry. However, questions can also be a distraction from the real issues that are at hand. There are those, and they have endless questions on the end times, endless questions on speculation about the coming of Christ and about the nature of that coming. And they never seem to ask the real question, which is, where will I spend eternity? Will I be ready for the second coming of Christ? There are others, and they ask endless questions about the harmony between God's sovereignty and human responsibility without ever accepting the true and meaningful call of Christ to come to Him, to come to Him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and receive of the grace and the salvation that He can give. There's others, and they can ask questions about, is this person going to heaven? Is that person going to heaven? But they never ask the question that if they are going to heaven. Lord Jesus Christ would be presented with a question here in the verse number 23. He is asked by one of the men that are following him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Now, there's two ways in which we could look and understand this question, and perhaps both of them are right in and of themselves. Some commentators would say that there was a dispute among the Jews concerning how many of the Jews would be saved. Some would say, well, all of Israel of all time would be saved. Others would say, no, only those from a certain time and everything else. And there was this dispute among the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jewish people. And this is what this man was asking. Are there few that be saved? Is it just a small number of the Jewish people? Or will it be the entirety of the ancient people of God? Others would say that this was just a question from an inquisitive mind. A man who was wondering, well, how many are actually going to get into the kingdom of God? He's looking at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's seen in the early periods the great success that there was with the thousands of people that were following him and, and saying that they were going to serve him and so on. And yet, whenever push came to shove and their true discipleship was tested, many of them turned away from him never to follow him again. And so the question is, Lord, are there only going to be a few that will be saved? The Savior, as He was prone to do, sees and He understands that this is not the central issue or the central question that this man ought to be asking. And so He doesn't answer the man's initial question, but rather He answers the question that the man should have asked. 
The man was wanting to know how many would be saved, but Christ in this, in this, uh, par- or this parable, in this passage of Scripture, would tell this man not how many were going to be saved, but who would be saved. He would give him instruction, he would give him admonition, he would use illustration, and he would warn him of the impending damnation of those who profess religion but are not possessors of Jesus Christ. And so as Christ hears this question, he understands this man is completely off. This isn't the question that he ought to be asking. The question ought to be, who is going to be saved? For there were many that had gathered themselves around the Lord Jesus Christ who believed that they would be saved, who believed that they were going to be saved because they were the children and descendants of Abraham. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to cut through all of that and He's going to remind them, listen, the only way that you can know that you're saved, the only way that you can know that you're in the kingdom of God is if you know me as both Lord and Savior. And so, as the Lord Jesus Christ is now going to speak to the congregation that is gathered around Him, a congregation filled with those who are professors of religion, He's going to give them a warning. And that's the subject that I want you to consider with me this morning, Christ's warning to religious professors. Christ's warning to religious professors. And there's four things that we're going to draw out from this passage of Scripture this morning as a means of an outline. The first thing we're going to notice is the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ gave in the verse number 24. Then we're going to see the admonition that he gave within that in the verse 24 and 25. Then we're going to consider the illustration that he used in verse number 25 and the verse number 26. And then we're going to see the warning of damnation in the verse number 27 to the verse number 28. But let's break in here at the verse number 24, and we're going to see the instruction that the Lord Jesus Christ gave. Notice he says, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. I want you to see, first of all here, that the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing them and directing them to a place. And he's saying that you must enter in to the straight gate. And once you enter in through the straight gate, you will receive eternal life. And as you continue on this path, you will enter in then to the fullness of eternal life. So you receive life, but as you continue walking the narrow way, as he would talk about in Matthew 7, you'll finally then enter into the fullness of that eternal life in glory. And so he's pointing them to a place. But I want you to see something here, that the place that he's talking about, the straight gate, It's not just a physical gate. That this gate is actually symbolic of a person. And that is him, himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us work that out this morning. Matthew chapter 7. Let me just read a few verses to you. Matthew 7, the verse number 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth on to life, and few there be that find it. So see the connection between the straight gate and life. Then we'll read together from John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And the verse number 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Then John chapter 5. And the verse number 39. 
Search ye the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And so who is life? Who is the giver of life? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whenever Jesus Christ is speaking and saying to the congregation, listen, you need to enter through this straight gate. What He's saying to them is, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You need to come to Me in order to receive this eternal life. You need to enter into Me by saving faith in order to possess this life. And so Jesus Christ rightfully is understood to be the gate. He is the giver of life. He is the one who receives us. And we must enter into Him and to Him alone if we are to be saved. But I want you to see how the gate is described. It's described here as a narrow gate. That's what the word straight means. It's a narrow gate. Now, the gate here is narrow, not in its ability, but in its exclusivity. It's narrow, not in its ability, but its exclusivity. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ has the ability to save the whosoever. Whoever comes to Him in faith, He will receive. He will not turn you away, and He is able to save you to the uttermost. And so there is no deficiency when it's describing the gate as narrow. He is able to receive all and whosoever. But it is narrow in its exclusivity. There is only one gate, and it is this one singular gate that Jesus Christ has pointed to. There is not many gates. There is not two gates. There is not a thousand gates. There is simply one gate whereby we can enter into and receive eternal life. And so this gate, it's narrow in its exclusivity. This is the only way of salvation. But also as well, it is narrow not to restrict and make it difficult for the sinner to come to Christ, but to require the sinner to leave their sin, to leave all of their good works, and essentially come to the Lord Jesus Christ by themselves as they are, as an individual, having cast away from themselves all the things that they had cumbered themselves with as their good works and their false professions, and to strip that all away and to come to the gate, the narrow gate, and enter into Christ. It requires you to take away your good works and to trust in Christ alone. It requires you to trust in Him alone and not in church attendance. It requires you to trust in Him alone and not in good morality. This gate requires you to trust solely and completely in Him. If I could give you an illustration of that, you've ever seen sometimes these scams that people can do in the streets or you perhaps have seen the videos where they'll put money into a box, into a glass box, and you pay a certain amount, and you can put your hand into that box, the little hole, and you can take the money, and if you get the money out, you get to keep it. Now, of course, it's a scam, because as soon as you would clench your fist or take a hold of something, it changes the shape of your hand, and you can't get your hand out. And so the only way to, in order to get your hand back out is to simply let go of what you are clinging on to. And there are many people, and they are stuck. They can never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are holding on to their sin. They're like that individual, and they say, I, I've got this money, I've got this gold bar, and I could just squeeze and pull my hand, and I'll get it out, and I'll be free, and I'll have what I want, and I'll also be free to go my way. My friend, you must let go of your sin. 
You must let go of your false profession. You must let go of your good works in order to be freed from that and to come to Jesus Christ alone. But also notice the picture here. He talks here about a straight gate. A gate. Now that is a very common picture. All of us, I'm sure, whether we're farmers, whether we're not farmers, all of us have gates. We have gates on our homes, gates on our properties, gates to get into places and gates to get out. We all understand that a gate is a very simple thing. And if you want to get through a gate, unless somebody has made it incredibly difficult, if you want to get through a gate, you simply go up, you unlatch the gate, and you enter in. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this, that to enter into Him, it requires but a simple act. To enter into Christ requires but a simple exercise, not of your physical self, but of faith. And so if you are to come to Jesus Christ and you are to enter into Him, it requires the exercise of faith to open up the door and to enter into Christ. My friend, I want you to see as well that this, that this gate is presented to you and I this morning not just as an option, but it is presented to us as an imperative as the Lord Jesus Christ is wording this and as the Holy Spirit has inscribed this into Scripture for us, it comes to you and to me today as a present imperative. It is a command that you and I are to obey right now. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not in an hour's time, but even right now at this very moment, Christ through His Word in this meeting is commanding you, enter into me. Enter into Christ. Trust me. Receive me. Let there be the simple exercise of faith of opening up the latch and entering into me through the straight gate. And so, my friend, this gospel this morning, this gospel binds you. It does not simply leave you just to go away and make a decision. It requires of you to make a decision. It does not let the hearer simply walk away in neutral ground, saying, well, I'm okay where I am. You know, it requires of you to make a decision. And so as you've come to the house of God, you will actively and conscientiously leave the house of God this morning, having listened to His command, having received the Lord Jesus Christ, or having rejected Him. Nobody will leave on neutral ground. Nobody will leave not having made a conscious decision to have come to Christ or to have rejected Him. But notice he goes on then to describe the passion here. He's talked about the place, the straight gate, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given to us a picture which speaks to us of the simple exercise of faith that you and I must perform if we are to enter into Christ. But then he also reminds us of the passion that we are to have as we seek to enter into Christ. For in verse 24, his first word is strive. Strive. The Greek word there is agonizomai. It's where we get our English word to agonize from. And there is the picture of, of a person and they're engaging in a sporting activity. Perhaps somebody that's doing a long run and they're putting their body through extreme exhaustion, extreme exertion in order to achieve the goal that is set before them. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, enter into the gate, not half-heartedly, not in a relaxed fashion, not haphazardly, 
but strive to enter into that gate. Exert yourself. Agonize over this issue. Am I in Jesus Christ or am I not in Jesus Christ? Now, why would he have to tell us to strive? But we must strive because there's many things that would keep us from entering into Christ. There's many things that would keep us from receiving of his salvation. I'll list just two of them, but the first one is our sin. In John chapter 3, as the Lord Jesus Christ again is talking, and he says in the verse number 19, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. Who is this light? It's him. I am the light of the world. That light has come into the world, and men loved darkness. I want you to focus in there on that word, loved. Not just that men are in darkness, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And what is that darkness a picture of? It's a picture of their deeds, their evil deeds. And so men, as they're in that natural, sinful condition, they love their sin. They love it. They may not always love the consequences of their sin, but they love the sin itself. They love their idolatry. They they love being able to live a life where they can put other things before God than God Himself. They love living that life where, yes, they they have God, but it's a lowercase g. He's not truly God over all their life. They'll come to church one week and they'll be missing next week. They'll come to church at this time and then they're away to the lake the next week. God takes secondary place and their life is filled with idols. They love their adultery. They love the the thoughts and they love the looks and everything else that comes into their mind and into their heart. They love their lies. The lie that they can live in, that everything's fine. That I'm safe. I'm secure in Jesus Christ. And yet, really, if they were to sit down and examine themselves according to the standard and of the evidence of the new birth in their life, they would have to admit that they were lying. They do not know Him at all. Men love their sin. And my friend, you must leave your sin if you are to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are to embrace Christ as your love, and you are to know the love of Christ that passeth all understanding, you must leave the things that you love right now, your sin and your wickedness. Christ requires us to turn, to repent, to have that change of mind, to leave the practices of our sin and and giving to that what we love, and to seek Him. But then, not just as our sin keep us from coming to Christ. But another one is our unbelief. Now, I know unbelief is a sin, but I've separated it for a reason. That many today would seek to put the blame upon Christ as the reason why they're not coming. And they would say, well, the reason I'm not coming to Christ is, well, the evidence just doesn't line up. The reason why I'm not a Christian is because there's just not enough evidence in front of me in order for me to believe. And I'm sure perhaps you have heard people say before, well, if God was to come and speak to me directly, then I would believe. And yet, my friend, God has come to many an individual down through the years of redemptive history and spoken to them primarily through the person of Jesus Christ, and they still have not believed. It's not 
an issue of intellect. Unbelief is not a problem of the mind. Unbelief is not a problem of evidence or of intellect. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelief is a moral problem. In Romans chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul would write there, a wonderful chapter on the nature of man's heart, Romans chapter 1. The verse number 19 will break in here. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, so that you have a knowledge of God in your heart. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made by creation, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so God says about the atheist, they have no excuse. God says about the one who will not believe, listen, you have all the evidence that you could ever possibly want sitting before you. It's not a problem of evidence. It's a problem of the heart. What did Jesus Christ say? Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. He did not say, you don't understand and that's a hindrance to you coming to me. No, ye will not come to me. Belief is an act of the will. Belief is an act of our hearts when we would say, listen, I'm going to believe what God has revealed Himself to be and what God has told me He has done in Christ. I will believe that or I will not. My friend, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, as it says in Romans 3, every mouth will be stopped. And all the excuses that you think that you have today, all of the arguments that you think that you will present to God as a means of justifying you and excusing you for your sin and for your unbelief, in a very moment, all of them will be taken away. And you will recognize that God will rightfully state that you are guilty. Christ instructs them, listen, I am this gate. And you must enter into me by a simple exercise of saving faith. And you must do so not with indifference, not with laziness, but you must do so with passion. You must strive and you must agonize to enter into me. And sinner, I I bring this same exhortation to you this morning. You must strive to enter into Christ. Even now while you're in this meeting, and perhaps other thoughts are coming into your mind, or things are coming in to distract you, and the devil is seeking to snatch away the good seed of the Word, you must fight against that, you must resist that, and you must make sure, yes, I am in Jesus Christ. Yes, there is the evidence of Christian conversion within me. Yes, I am fully trusting in Him. Notice our Savior goes on in the verse number 24 to give then an admonition. He gives an admonition. At the end of verse number 24, He says, For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Now, is this not a direct contradiction of what I've just said? If Christ has presented Himself as the gate, a gate, yes, that is narrow, but a gate that welcomes the whosoever, a gate that welcomes the sinner to come and to trust in Him, And as Jesus said, that if you will come to me, he will by no means cast you away. So how can it be then that many 
will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Well, I want to give to you an Old Testament example of what I believe this is speaking of. If you'll turn with me to actually the New Testament, but we're going to be reading a New Testament verse on an Old Testament story, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And this is a very powerful verse in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained a witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith. Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. I'm sure all of us would know something of the story of Cain and Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. And how these young men, having been instructed in the faith by their father Adam, came before God to offer up their sacrifices unto God. We know that Cain brought the very best of all of his produce. Cain brought the, the, the items from the ground, from the earth, and he presented them before God. And God rejected that sacrifice. Abel, he brought an animal, the first thing of the flock. Again, he brought that which was very best towards God, and he presented it to him. And God accepted a sacrifice. Now, what made the difference between the sacrifices? There are some, and they would say, well, it's obviously because Abel brought an animal and the blood was shed. And there is an element of truth in that. I believe these men, as they were coming to offer sacrifices, the sacrifices portrayed the faith that they had upon their heart. And Abel knew something of the preciousness and the value that the blood was going to have in his redemption. But when you read throughout the Old Testament, God did accept. He did accept offerings. Of, of fruits and crops and so on. There was the, the barley offering in the book of Leviticus and so on. And so was it the thing that Cain was offering? I, I don't believe that's really the depth of it. I believe it's this, what's said in Hebrews chapter 11. It was the fact that Abel came and offered it with faith. He offered it with faith unto God. And God, when he saw the faith of Abel, that that offering, that sacrifice, was only an outward demonstration of the inward faith that he possessed. That there would come one who would die for him, a Messiah who would redeem him, who would crush the head of the serpent. And that sacrifice was expressing his faith. God received him. But Cain had no faith. He had no faith. He still obviously had some sort of desire for God, he still obviously had some motivation within him, humanly speaking, to worship. He came and he made the offering. There was an element of sacrifice in it because he gave up of what was his, but he had no faith. And God rejected him because he did not believe. And my friend, I believe that teaches us what is happening here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. There are those who will enter into the straight gate and they will enter through that gate by faith and faith alone. But there will come a time whenever the door would be shut, an opportunity for entering into Christ would be passed, 
Either by they would die, or the master of the house, as we'll come to see in verse 25, would rise up and shut the door. An opportunity for them to be saved would be over, and they would not be able to enter in because they still do not have true saving faith. They still do not have that faith that saves. There are people, and they say, well, do you know what? I'll get saved on my deathbed. You are not, you are not guaranteed by God that you will possess true saving faith on your deathbed. You might be like one of those who will want to enter in, but at that time will not have the faith to do so. There's no promise that you'll even be concerned. There's no promise that you might even have a conscious opportunity. My friend, the door is opened up to those who will come by faith, but to the faithless, the door is shut. And Christ is admonishing these people that they must have true saving faith. They must enter in through that straight gate while there is time and while there is opportunity. For as the door, as the gate is shut to the faithless, so it will also be shut for once and for all. And Christ, through this illustration that we'll now read in verse 25, is going to remind them that someday the door of opportunity for salvation will be closed. In verse 25, he gives this illustration. He says, When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. So here is the picture. You have the house. The house has a door. And there is the master of the house. And the door is open. And there are people who are entering into the master's house. And he is receiving them in. But there comes a time. There comes an hour. When the master of the house rises up. And he closes the door. And as he closes the door. The door is closed. Not to be opened again. And people who have been haphazard about coming to the celebration. People who have been just having a casual attitude towards getting to the master's house have been locked outside and they've been locked out of any opportunity of salvation. And so, my friend, there will come a time when time will end. And there will come a time when opportunity will also end. And there will come a time when the master of the house, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rise up from off his throne and he will close the door of his kingdom forever. And those who out of some sense of self-preservation, those who have seen that they have missed out, would cry out, let us in, their opportunity is gone. Their opportunity is past. And I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is reminding us here of the speediness and the urgency that there is to our salvation. That you must come to Jesus Christ and you must come now. You must come to Jesus Christ and exercise faith and trust in Him to be received into the house, to be received into Him, and you must do it even in this meeting. You must call it unto God. I believe, I trust in you. Notice the protest that happens here. In verse number 26, Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten 
and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. I want the weightiness of those words to grip you today. I want you to really see the solemnity and the seriousness of verse number 26. These are people that have had dinner with Christ Himself. These are people that have been in the very intimate presence of Christ. So close to Him, they reach out and touch Him reaching over to the same plate of food that he has eaten from and taken from it, sharing the the same drink that he has been drinking at that celebration, walking through the streets, looking over and seeing the Savior, and being within an earshot of his preaching and teaching. Those very people are shut outside the kingdom, outside the kingdom, And my friend, this ought to come as a solemn and a serious warning that it is possible to be in the very intimate presence of Christ. It is possible to come to the house of God on the Lord's Day morning, on the Lord's Day evening. It is possible to partake and to enjoy and to be involved in all the activities of church life and yet at the very end of the day be locked outside the kingdom. Be locked outside. My friend, the only way that you enter into the kingdom is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way in. And it does not matter how many times you have attended the house of God. It does not matter how spiritual you seem to think that you are. It does not matter how good other people think that you are. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll never be saved. And you'll be locked outside of the kingdom. And you'll be like one of these in verse 26. Lord, Lord, I sat in Calgary Free Presbyterian Church. Lord, I sat there week after week after week. Lord, I I sat and I watched or I partook in communion. And I ate the bread and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, or I watched others partake of it. Lord, I I sat under the preaching of your word. I listened to Reverend Simpson, Reverend Golliker, and all of the other preachers that came. I heard your word expounded. And yet Christ would say to you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Now again, as we look here at verse number 27, what does it mean when Christ says, I tell you, I know you not when she are? Of course he knew them. Of course he knew them. He had eaten with them. He had drank with them. He had preached to them. And just as we would come and we'll eat and share a meal together, and I'll get to know you, and you'll get to know me, and I'll know your name, and you'll know my name, and you'll know where I'm from, and I'll know where you're from, and what you do, and what you work. Did Christ not know these people? My friend, it's speaking there that he did not know them as his own. That he did not know them as a part of his flock. That he did not know them in that personal, saving experience, that they were outside of a sheepfold, and he did not know them. My friend, again, I stress to you that only those who have believed in Christ and have strived to enter in through him, in through that gate, will be in the kingdom, will be received by him. 
And he will say to them, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Just again, imagine the, the, the words here, the language that he's using. Again, these were people that had eaten and drunk with Christ. And yet he calls them workers of iniquity. Workers of iniquity. Lord, I, I, I did so much for your church. Lord, I gave my tithe. I gave my money. I, I cleaned up around the church. I did this, that, and the other thing. Lord, have I not done all of these things? And yet he'll turn to you, and you'll be standing there with all of these things that you have done, and he'll say, you're a worker of iniquity. Well, my friend, the only way, and I say it again, to know that you're in Christ is to have come to him by faith and trusted in him alone. It is but a simple act. I bring you back to the gate. It's but a simple act of faith. It's as if you come up to that gate and you simply unlatch the gate and you open and you walk right in. My friends, so it is with Jesus Christ. If you would but come to Him and say, I believe that you are the Son of the living God. And by faith you enter into Him. I pray that you would come to Christ today and receive Him and trust Him and know Him. There is a little hymn, and it has with it very, again, solemn words. The hymn writer penned it this way. He said, you can be close to the cross, but far from the blood. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, but never changed by his love. Never cleansed by the fountain of his precious cleansing blood. You can be close to the cross, but far from the blood. Is that you today, my friend? Close to all the proximities of religion, but you're not close to the Savior. Christ would finish off with a strong warning of damnation. In verse number 28, he says, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Now he's describing certain people that will be in the kingdom and he's describing particular individuals that would be pertinent to the congregation that he's ministering to. And he's saying to them, listen, you're going to look up and you're going to see Abraham, the father of the faithful. You're going to look at those to whom you thought that you were in covenant with. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets of God the people that you thought you were with, the people that you thought you were connected with by birth and covenant and all of these other blessings, you're going to look to those very people and see them in the kingdom. And you thrust out. My friend, my friend, why is it that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the kingdom? Read Hebrews 11 by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. And these people who are outside the kingdom are the faithless. They are those who have not trusted in Christ. They are those who have rejected His offers of mercy. And so Christ says to them, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be eternal judgment for sin. Well, I pray that you would see the serious consequences of idling around your salvation you would see the serious consequences of procrastination, putting off salvation. That you would see the serious consequence of rejecting Christ as Lord and Savior because someday He will reject you. 
and you will be thrust out into God's hell for all of eternity. But my friend, this is why we have the good news of the gospel, because the good news is that the door is open. The master of the house is still seated on his throne. He has not shut the door. There is an offer of mercy and salvation to you today as the Word of God is being preached and you hear His Word being preached to you and you hear that present command to your soul to strive to enter in. There's opportunity for you. There's mercy for you. There's salvation for you today. Christ is compelling you through His Word. Come to me. The door is open. Mercy is there for you. Come into the Master's house. Come in and receive of His blessings and benefits. Enter in by faith and trust in Him. Come today. Come at this very moment, even in this meeting. Cry out unto God for salvation. But my friend, realize today, if you do not do this, if you do not turn to Him, then someday He will thrust you out. The door will be locked. And you will be lost in hell forever. Come now. Come at this very moment. And by faith, enter into Christ. And know today the blessings, not just of being in a church building, but know the blessings today of being in the Master's house, being one of His flock. Christ will receive you. He does not give out any false invitations. Christ means every word that He says. And if you come to Him today and you heed His invitation, He will receive you. He will welcome you. He will deliver you. And the Lord bless His Word to our hearts even this morning. We're going to turn to our final hymn. It's the hymn number 309, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling, Calling for you and for me. See in the portals He's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. 309, We'll sing the entirety of this hymn prayerfully, thinking about the words, thinking about even the exhortation in this hymn. Come home. Come home. Come to the Master's house. Come and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. 309, let's stand, please, as we would sing.